All right, so welcome to this uh, first seminar with Professor Salwar Ismail. Uh, and it launches a new research network called Popular uh, Mobilization and Social Movements in the Middle East and North Africa, which has been wonderfully organized by the Middle East Center and Sarah Masri and Rimal Salman Haidar and uh, Bob Lowe and my. Uh, uh, thanks to them because it, it, you know the way this has been set up has been terrific and um, the idea is to be able to create a critical mass in a network of, of scholars, students, advanced students and uh, faculty working on issues related to social movements, contentious politics, popular mobilisation in the Middle East and North Africa and of course it's a timely moment to be doing something like that. And we're also starting a, a, an online uh, email listserv which will try to bring together people uh, internationally from the Middle East, from the United States, from Europe and the, and the UK who are working on this. But uh, this is the first of these seminar series. I can't think of a better person to begin that than Professor Salwa Ismail because I remember when I came back from Egypt in the second week of uh, February 2011, I, I, there was just something tickling in my head after witnessing what I thought. I thought this is so, it's got so much to do with Salwa's book, uh, Political Life in Cairo's New Quarters, which is the book she published, a very serious detailed ethnography of interactions between especially young men in informal and popular quarters and the police. And uh, it seemed so relevant, and I was grasping at bits from it to think, yes, this must be the way things work. And then, of course, but Salwa Ismail has done all of that because we've got these two articles uh, in front of us that uh, take forward uh, uh, in relation to questions of mobilisation, whole issues of you know, socio-spatial incorporation and regime practices and spatial practices, especially in the city, ranging from you know, police action through to how re regimes co-opt certain segments uh, in Syria and, uh, and so the idea for this seminar is that we, we do this in a certain style we, it's not that simply Sarah's going to talk to you for an hour and 30 minutes and then you're going to ask a couple of questions and go home the idea is that we have these papers they were circulated in advance we, we've read them and, the, and uh, Salwa doesn't even really have to present them she's going to speak for 10 to 15 minutes uh, uh, giving us a, a larger perspective on this, referring to these two articles, which of course we've read. And then we have uh, Neil Ketchley, uh, who, who's going to discuss uh, for about 10 minutes these two articles. You could probably take a couple of minutes more. Uh, and, and it's a real pleasure, and thank you very much for, for coming to, to, to do the discussion. I think Neil is just fresh in from Cairo. He's uh, a senior PhD student in the Department of Government at LSE, and he's, worked, he's got an article, a recent article in Comparative Studies in Society and History on fraternization and interactions between crowd and army in Egypt, in, especially during the 18 days, and he's working now on protests uh, that are chiefly organised around the Muslim Brotherhood. Salwa Ismail has a long publishing track record. I won't detail all her books here, but her first book was called Rethinking Islamist Politics, Culture, the State and Islamism. Her second book was This Political Life in Cairo's New Quarters. And her publications have appeared in various places, and, and you've seen these two, but also in Third World Quarterly, Social Research, Comparative Studies in Society and History, and so on. 
So, uh, without further ado, let me turn it over to Salwa for our 10 or 15 minute introduction. Thank you very much. Thank you, John. I'm very pleased to be here and uh, I think this is a great initiative uh, on social movements and popular mobilization and uh, I'm honoured to be uh, the first speaker in this uh, uh, series and also thank you very much for this very kind introduction. Um, very much appreciated. Um, so, you've read the papers and I don't really want to kind of summarize the main arguments as such, rather I want to talk to you a, bit, a little bit, reflect on um, kind of a reflection on what I was trying to do and draw on some of the other work that I have in progress uh, as well in the various directions that I'm, I'm hoping to take this work. So in the two articles that were circulated ahead of the talk, I set out to demonstrate two main propositions about agency and forms of action witnessed in the Arab revolutions. Uh, drawing primarily on the case of Egypt and comparatively on Syria in one of the articles. I mean, I'm just highlighting two key propositions. I mean, there are all, all kinds of arguments that some of them are developed sufficiently and others are kind of, you know, thrown in and hopefully I would manage to take them further. So these two, but for, for the moment, I want to kind of pick on these two lines of uh, arguments. Um, one has to do with the subject of the revolution, uh, who the subject of the revolution is, and I've set out to say that it's not simply the middle class as has been uh, put in so many of accounts, um, both by scholars and observers, analysts, uh, media accounts and so on, that it was the middle class. And we have uh, articles, for instance, like uh, I think Amr Adli, a serious scholar, uh, political economist, uh, with an article with the title, Why Did the Middle Class March on to Tahrir? Uh, and with you know similar proposition, is it Amr Adli or maybe Hazem Khanzir? Hazem Khanzir uh, yes. But Amr Adli also had made the similar kind of uh, uh, propositions. Um, so that so I've set out to say no, it wasn't simply the middle class. And in fact, uh, we know that the revolution was carried out in the name of the people, Shab, as in the famous slogan, Shab Yurid Isqat al Nizam, the people want to bring down the regime. Um, so I asked who is the Shab, and I set out to then to investigate concretely who the Shab is. And naturally, for me, I focused I focus on popular forces, al-Qawa al-Shabaya, a somewhat amorphous notion that is still meaningful and signifying, and in my view can be pinned down to some degree. Um, Two, and in connection to this, I also put forward the proposition that the revolution or revolutionary activism was an uprising against the police to a great extent. Of course, there are other things going on, but I think within the revolution or the revolutionary activism that we've witnessed um, during the events of, that began on January 25th, uh, 2011, there was an uprising on the part of popular forces against the police. Um, and behind the statement, there is an attempt to answer the question of what kind of subject the revolutionary subject in Egypt is, how she, he, has been formed, and so on. So these are some of my organizing and simple ideas. But now I problematize them to some extent and add that I rest my case on subsidiary arguments, mainly about the urban everyday, 
as providing the grounds of action and furnishing resources and capacities for action. And here I'm referring to the accumulated experiences uh, or resources that are accumulated in quotidian practices of living and inhabiting the city. And of these I highlight, one, place-making practices and practices of autonomization. And, he, and by this I mean practices and institutions that achieve relative independence from state government. So I want to say that in the everyday, actually people acquire, accumulate resources and capacities and skills, know-how in their interaction with government. And that this is a, uh, furnishes them um, with means of responding and resisting to government, resisting government. Um, and I want to link that, and I've done that in my work throughout, that interaction with government is, is formative experience, and it's formative of the subject and of subjectivities, of political subjectivities. Uh, and that's, my focus here is on everyday interaction uh, with government that ordinary citizens, that is part of the ordinary citizens' experience. So in my work, I've looked at how ordinary people in popular neighborhoods of Cairo, but throughout the city, and this could be also in other cities, in not just in Egypt, but also in many other countries of the region, so in Tunisia, in Syria, and so on, come into contact with government, uh, agents and agencies of government, and particularly here is the police. That, you know, if um, the police, in the case of Egypt in particular, is, is very present in the everyday life of people. It's a kind of, an, as an apparatus of government, it has an extensive remit. Uh, it, it, it's it goes beyond public security uh, in order to cover uh, things like markets, uh, transport, um, uh, food supply, uh, and so on. They monitor actually all of this in the everyday. That makes their presence them very present and intrusive in uh, ordinary people's everyday life. But more so for popular uh, popular forces, and, and by popular forces here I mean the residents of what is known as popular quarters, uh, who are in socio-economic terms working classes, even if they're not workers in factories, they're working in informal uh, kind of employment as peddlers and vendors and uh, uh, mechanics and, and, and so on, um, and most of their economic activities are informal economic activities. So, and, and that, this informality in housing and their informality in their employment also positions them in a oppositional relation with government because, in principle, they are breaking or transgressing against some law. Okay. So there is a precarity to their socio-economic position or at least to the relationship they have with government because they've transgressed against a law. In Syria, I mean, my Syrian friend here, Karim, uh, uh, would confirm that they have a saying in uh, uh, in reference to uh, citizens as muatin taht talab, a citizen on demand or, or who's subject to demand, meaning who's actually a wanted citizen, wanted for having committed an an infraction, 
for having built illegally or having engaged in some illegal economic activity. So already this is a citizen that exists or is positionally uh, in a, a occupying an oppositional position in relation to government. Now, um, and it's by virtue then of interaction with government surrounding these transgressions, so whether it is the police raiding markets or the police, uh, so the municipality police raiding the markets or the housing police raiding the neighborhoods to actually bring down, they are, they have the power to uh, destroy or uh, bring down uh, a house that is built illegally and so on. Uh, or when it is actually there is a electricity police, they're monitoring the, the illegal use of the electricity. In all of these daily interactions, there is a confrontation going on. And it's in, this, uh, and in these interactions also that the subjects, that ordinary citizens, young men, young women, their families, um, develop feelings in relationship to the police, and these feelings... I, I also argue were formative of this oppositional subject that performed uh, on during the events of the uh, uh, January 25th, 2011. And the most evident example of this was the attack on police stations. In the first three days of the revolution, 99 police stations were burned to the ground. We actually, there could have been more, but that's the record of uh, that what we have on file on our record. In Cairo, 25 uh, police stations alone, all of them in popular neighborhoods. So in Bula'at Dakrur, in Matareya, in Ain Shams, in Hilwan, uh, and so on. In fact, I list all of them in the paper. I've recently, only very recently, I've looked at, at, at videos of the attacks uh, over <coughs> the last, uh, um, last couple of years, but very recent video was made available on the, of the attack in Matareya. And I just want to tell you something about what happened in the attack of Matareya. We see actually in the video that, uh, uh, and, I, and this is part of a whole narrative of what was going on in reference to the revolution. People were congregating in the alleys, but in order to get out and they had to reach the main square, the police building is right by the main square. There is no way to get to Tahrir except by passing through the main square of Matareya on their way to Tahrir. So one can say they had to confront the police because they were on their way and the police was stopping them. But if you watch the videos, actually you see something else going on. Uh, the confrontation was, one, there was a burning down of all of the central security uh, vans. There were like dozens of them that were burnt down. Uh, and, the, and they were congregating uh, by the police uh, building in, 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 in anticipation of an attack. But part of the action was, you can hear one of the mosques in the background, the preacher asking the, asking the people or telling them, well, okay, now you're, you've got their way, get on, get, go to Tahrir, leave. But they don't want to leave. They actually want to pursue the police officers. They, en they enter the mosque that has given a refuge to one of the officers. And he's in, in the imam's uh, um, office. And there, the crowd is outside, just waiting. When finally they have sight of him, they start shouting in unison, that's him, that's the one. That, I can tell you, was repeated throughout the police stations uh, in, in Cairo during those, in the first days, but even following that, in the, the search for all of these officers 
who were engaged in the repressive uh, uh, acts and whose in the everyday interaction were undermining people's livelihood. But it, it's also expressive of the strength of the feelings against, uh, against the police that were in, enacted in those first few days. Um, so one then is interaction with government was formative of the opposition subject, but another is that in the everyday, people through the practices of the everyday, practices of what I call autonomization and placemaking, acquire capacities that enable them and empower them to act. Um, so in, in, in the papers, I outline some of these practices, uh, and also in the book, I talk about uh, the uh, establishment of conflict um, resolution uh, institutions, Majalis Orfeya, councils of elders, to get around government. I also talk about um, the develop the placemaking practices, uh, the how through discourses and practices, uh, the residents. Uh, identify with their places and they develop a sense of place that grounds their defense against government. Now this is important in the context that many of these neighborhoods are also under attack or threatened by eviction uh, notices as in Abu Layla for instance which is right I call the back street of Tahrir where so much of the action uh, the media has focused on Tahrir, the public square. But actually, if we look at the back streets of Tahrir in Bula' Abu Layla and further back streets in Bula' Dakrur and Matariya and Faisal and so on, uh, the battles that have been going there connect with the everyday battles defending those spaces. These spaces were, were under attack and threatened by eviction, for instance, part of the global Cairo plan, the 2050 plan. Uh, so that Bula Abu Layla had the residents were served notices for eviction over the last couple of years, and they were continuously in confrontation with the police who would come down to serve these notices and to evict them. Sometimes successfully, sometimes not. And very interestingly, people will come back after the house has been demolished. They come and sit next to it, and they continue to do this after. So, and part of this is they develop a sense of place and practices for the defense of place. We see this actually again enacted during the revolution. What I want to say here is that we should not really see the events of the revolution, uh, the Tahrir, the days of Tahrir, disconnected from what happened after and what happened, uh, uh, what happened before and what happened after. I think we have to see them as a series, as a moment in a series of events as a moment in a constellation of action and interaction. Um, and, 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 and that brings me to just a kind of a uh, uh, final point to make about sub the subject and action and subjectivity. The subject of re the revolution I want to kind of draw here and identify is not the subject in someone like Asif Bayat's uh, passive networks. Uh, who Bayat argues about the every you know the um, passive networks that develop in the informal markets on the streets and so on among among ordinary citizens that they recognize each other they know that they have common goals and objectives but they don't form, form a social movement he actually calls them a non-movement he says they will only act if their interests are threatened 
I'm saying actually that's not the case. They will act in context. When it, the context allows them to act, they have already the resources, the capacities, and they've already been formed as oppositional subject. So they're not just the ones who will act defensively, and they're not passive subjects, they're actually active subjects who will act in the context, and that's what we've seen in the, uh, um, in the context of the, of the revolution. I think I'll stop here. Okay. So let's turn it over to Neil Ketchley. So a, a, short, a short vignette before I start, which is that we also run a, a contentious politics workshop here that meets monthly. And uh, John is kind of a part of the group of people that organises um, who we get to speak. And I noticed that John pointedly failed to invite Sal Ishmael to it, Ishmael to it. I assume because he wanted her all to himself. And, and I think it's very clear from the reading why that is, because there is much that recommends um, itself in, in, the, in the two articles we've just read. Um, they are clearly empirically rich. They draw on years of fieldwork and intimate knowledge of the cases. And they are sympathetic in drawing out occluded narratives and forces and, and, and personalities and communities that have otherwise been kind of um, written out of, as Salah shows, a kind of middle-class, iPad-holding, uh, Oscar-nominated, uh, documentary-making kind of middle-class <laughs> revolutionary narrative, right? And this is also the good, and this is very important, and, and, and there is much rich material in this which, which, which belies the kind of easy-to-hand um, kind of uh, revolutionary narrative that we get from all kinds of sources. Um, at the same time, it's also very rigorous, right? There's a, there's a causal account. This isn't simply social history. There is, I mean, the, the really nice part about the CSSH paper was that um, it's comparative. You know, there's a paired comparison there. And it's, there's not only a comparison between Egypt and Syria, um, but there's a within-case study comparison in looking at different popular quarters and showing how different elements that were present in some and not in others led to variation. And, and that's nice. Like, you don't see comparatives very much in, in Middle Eastern studies. Um, I suppose the, the, what I'd really like you to speak to, perhaps, is, and you started to touch on it slightly um, in, in the talk, are the processes of mobilization itself. Because it seems to me that there's a, there's a kind of an unacknowledged tension that runs throughout both the, the, the papers, and I think is nicely illustrated in the title, which is this juxtaposition of the everyday with revolution. Because revolutions are not everyday, right? Revolutions are extraordinary in many senses. And it seems to me, and, and, and I think it's in Selva's work and, and, for example, Charles Tripp's recent book on the power and the people, in which there's a tendency to assume that kind of you know, oppositional subjectivities or resistant subjectivities just kind of seamlessly telescope into large-scale acts of transgressive collective action without specifying the kind of meso-level dynamics, processes, mechanisms, call them what you want, which make these everyday processes revolutionary. Because, as we know, I mean, if you, if you think of classic accounts of revolutions. Uh, Theodor Scotchpole's take on um, Ted Gurr's work on white men rebel and, and relative deprivation. Grievances are not enough to mobilise. If they were, we would have a lot more, more, a lot more revolutions. So what is it that activates these grievances and allows them to be framed in certain ways to get people to start organising collectively? Because we know that the, the, the collective action has costs. There are problems. There, there, it's, it's, and especially in situations where um, you know, you're faced with an entrenched dictatorship, with, with security apparatus, and so forth. Um, so perhaps if you, could, if you could speak to that a little bit. And specifically, how it is that, that these subaltern groups 
the, 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 the process of mobilization, but also the connections and the linkages with other social forces and what inspiration these social for, these subaltern forces took from elsewhere in terms of opportunities, in terms of resource mobilization, etc. And, 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 and acknowledging, of course, the important role of these kind of everyday experiences that accumulate and allow people to know the, both the power and the limits of the regime, um, etc. Um, Another question would be, how has it been? I mean, if we assume that there has been, that you have uh, a kind of an oppositional subjectivity that becomes, through whatever process, a revolutionary subjectivity, what becomes of that? What happens after the 18 days? Because you show that, that, that in this kind of articulation of a shab, the, you know, the people and personhood, you know, there's, there's a degree of class washing there. All, only, only the middle class masters of the revolution get their pictures painted on the walls in Zemelik. Nobody else does. You know, if you go, if you went to Tahrir shortly after the 18 days, you could buy lanyards, you know, on strings that you that would have the pictures of the masters, and they were all very nice-looking, you know, um, middle-class kids from, you know, the, the public universities or elsewhere. So, what happens to the role of these subaltern fellow forces, and how do they make sense of their newfound revolutionary subjecthood? Um, just, a, I mean, it's it's a, it's more of a question of research design. I was I was interested about with the CSSH paper whether there's potentially an endogeneity problem in terms of the cases, because are the two cases independent of each other, in a sense? When you're trying to show variation of outcome on a dependent variable, why there's mobilization in some places and not in others? I mean, we know, for example, that, that, that revolutions occur in waves increasingly. You have the people power revolutions in Southeast Asia, you have the color electoral revolutions, you have the Arab Spring, Tunisia, Egypt, and then Bahrain, etc. It does it not matter in some ways that, that, that Syria happens at the end of this wave? that the demonstration effects of large-scale acts of transgressive collective action in public spaces in, in Egypt is simply not replicable in, in Syria because there's been diffusion proofing, because regimes, you know, starting with Bahrain and then, and then Libya, they know they, they know they can shoot. There's a signaling effect going on, which they, they know they can open fire on, on protesters with impunity, and especially in Syria where there's, you know, as you talk about, a long history or memory of the, of the, of the insurgency in the 1980s. Um, finally, I would, I would ask about this question of the articulation of, of peoplehood. I and mean, we know from people like, uh, like uh, Lacan, not Lacan, who am I thinking about? Um, we know that the, 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 the people is not an a priori subject, right? Mm. It only exists as a kind of an oppositional form of articulation. Mm. So, He's thinking Laclau. Laclau, exactly. Popular reason. Um, can, you, can you perhaps give a kind of some concrete examples of the actual performances of this? so that we can perhaps take seriously contention not simply as being an outcome of structural or social forces, but actually as a field of action that's constitutive of new things. That's 10 minutes. Mm. Give or take. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fine, because I don't think I can answer more questions than that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you've given me a lot to think about, and I'm not really sure I have answers for everything. But processes of mobilization. Um, now, I talk a little bit about what happened in... in um, mobilizing on the 25th. I mean, we know that the um, organizers of the um, Day of Anger, the police day, actually uh, you know, thought of going and did go to popular neighborhoods, uh, particularly Bula and Bakur, and they had planned that. And, uh, and, and so one can say, okay, it was these middle-class kids organizing in those areas. But of of course, we also know, or where I have accounts of local level organizing in Faisal and, and so on, on the part of uh, youth uh, activists, some of them ultras. So, and, and 
from the interviews that this is what the account they give. Yes, there was a call for mobilization and for marching onto Tahrir. And they debated it and discussed it among themselves of how they should respond and should they respond as ultras and how and whatever. And they've come to the, the decision originally to respond as an, at a neighborhood level, to have marches from the neighborhood, from Faisal, um, and, and so on, uh, to, to Tahrir with banners of their neighborhood. Later on, they, they move with banners of, um, of the ultras. Now... In the mobilization, they relied on their neighborhood networks. They relied on the networks of friends and families. They started in the alleyways, where they have those, these are the spaces of sociability, the spaces of comfort, and the spaces of security. So uh, it, it is there that they were able, and they, they can have the trust uh, um, of their family, their friends, and they can have the influence and so on to mobilize these people. This is also, you must realize something, that it's been happening before. It wasn't just on January 25th, so that we know that earlier on in, in, in 2010, you know, there were similar, uh, similar type mobilization against police violence and brutality and torture in, uh, in Shobra, for instance. And people, that again is another example where the activists, someone like Busayna Kamel and uh, Ahmed Duma, that's the April 6th uh, youth activists, going to Shobra, and, but people responded and they went because there was an instance of police violence. But these kinds of, at least at neighborhood levels and mobilization were happening earlier when it was in confrontation with the police regarding some, you know, whether it is police torture uh, um, or uh, police action of like eviction or so. These were going on. So I'm, I'm just saying that we are seeing um, in the context of revolution, an iteration of actions uh, 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 done previously, but now we had that spark. But what made it possible for this generalized mobilization to happen is actually what was going on at the local level in those areas that have experienced that. Without this, that mobilization in Tahrir, the, 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 whoever, the march in Tahrir on its own couldn't have, would not have. But could you conceive that those mobilizations wouldn't have been revolutionary without the events of Tahrir? Because, I mean, for example, right now... But if they like made the events of Tahrir. They made... They, if it were, if mm -hmm. they didn't mobilize at the level of neighborhood and then march onto Tahrir mm -hmm. and continue to act and attack the police for the first few days mm -hmm. in Tahrir, you wouldn't have. And, and listen to uh, some of the young people that have been quoted in there, whether I interview them or others, and they say, you know, without that happening... Mm -hmm. Uh, the attack on police stations, for instance, you wouldn't have had that. I, I suppose I would, I would think counterfactually, which is, I mean, if you look at what's going on now at the moment since since the 3rd of July coup, there are daily protests going on in places like Montoreya, in, in Ain Shams, um, in, in uh, Zaytun, yeah. in Faisal, the, the, exactly the same popular quarters, but they remain localised. Mm. They're not revolutionary. Yeah. In a sense, and that's as a result of, of police tactics. For example, that they stop the rallies from going into different neighbourhoods. Neighborhoods, they protect them with ends. Yeah. But, but the, I mean, the struggle of the mobilisation right now is precisely to try and have, for example, brokerage with different groups to be able to transgress neighbourhood boundaries and yeah. transgress the alleyways into broader public but, forms. But, of but Neil, I mean, I think you're you're doing. You, I think maybe you're falling into the same trap as the as the leading revolutionaries, this youth activists, who you seem to think that it's all got to happen in Tahrir. And if you read some of the other activists, when they're talking among themselves, and you know, so you, you read someone like Ali, Ali al-Masalam, he said, for instance, she says, forget about Tahrir, let's just be on the streets of the neighborhood, let's be 
in Mbaba, let's be in, and that's where the action is. So, you know, to try, because Tahrir, they get kicked out of Tahrir as well. You get the ma- massive mobilization against them. It gets taken by the Islam, at one point by the Islamists and so on. We have these different episodes. So I think that, in fact, the mobilization, the continued mobilization at, at, at quarter level is the fantastic vindication of the revolutionary activism. To me, it's actually, that is more important mm-hmm. than gathering in Tahrir. And when you see that actually some of this is around demands and uh, de- demands for instance housing rights and so on so when you see popular committees in place like places like Bula Abu Laila like in Maspero like in Ramlet Bula acting to defend the place to act against the you know attempt of evictions and so on and organizing to the point that you know Ramlet Bula they through with organized activists with people like the person the, the the initiative for personal rights for instance uh, going to court and actually winning a uh, winning a court case against eviction and to the right to stay in Ramla, these are have to be seen in conjunction. Mm-hmm. The uh, the popular level, um, the local activism, the popular committees, the mobilizing, and the local demands. And it was really the local demands li- linked up with the national demands. And I think the success, if this revolution will succeed, it's only by continuing at that local level. If it keeps being, if it keeps being seen as the middle class of Tahrir, people lose interest completely as well. You know that these are the privileged. I, I, you know, I'm not saying that uh, a national or coordinated action is not important, but I think that the uh, it's more the volume, volume, but the momentum, the continuous momentum of of this. So I think that's very hopeful. In fact, what you're saying. Um, uh, the, uh, what you're saying about the oppositional sub- subjectivity and how it's, I mean, in the sense you're asking me, how does it feed uh, into, I mean, how, okay, an oppositional subject well, is... How does it transform? In a sense? How does it? Well, assuming that, 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 that these oppositional subjectivities are produced by the everyday, i.e. they were present before the revolution for, yeah, it, for yeah, decades before, yeah, yeah. how did they become revolutionary in a sense? How do people start to think of themselves differently? So that they would organize differently or act differently. Yeah. How would I, I mean, their political imagination? My my answer to this is the following. One is that we should not think of subjectivity as a priori. Mm-hmm. So that it is the performance is in context. There is no a pri- so subject of rebellion or a subject of submission. It is in context. These sub- so these various I mean as I mentioned, uh, we can think of Al Ba'azizi and, and I know many of the people that are interviewed the times when they enact a kind of submissive subjectivity, and there are times when they enact a kind of revolutionary sub- subjectivity, even outside the context of, re- of the revolution. And I do sub- juxtapose two of my interviewees. You know, the one who refuses to intervene, though feeling outraged, the one police officer slaps a woman in the market. You know, he refrains from acting, but I think on another day he could act. And the one who actually challenges by looking back at the officer. This is the same one who said to me, you know, oh, they think we are idiots, blah, blah, blah. One day we'll all react, we'll rebel like, like Arabi, but we're waiting for Salah At the time, I interpreted what he said like, okay, that's great, let's we'll wait forever. You know, <laughs> there's not, I mean, it's the kind of deferring it uh, indefinitely. We don't know when a Salah or Arabi is going to emerge. It, ha- it so happened that actually there was no Salah or Arabi in Egypt on this January 25th. You know, mm-hmm. and and so, but the context, I think, the context of the mobilization itself, okay. I think, 
I know that's not terribly no, satisfactory. That's really yeah. Maybe, uh, shall we shall we broaden it out at this point? Okay. Because this has raised some really important issues, I think, and uh, I think we should you know keep pushing them and thinking. And uh, but let's see. Uh, if you if you have a, a comment or a question, uh, just please say who you are in your institutional affiliation, and um, perhaps we can take the discussion forward. The floor is open. Hi. Yeah. I, I'm, uh, I'm Walter Wells from California State University. Yeah. Um, I have a question, but, I, but it somehow or other feels as though it, it belongs nearer to the end and to do with the the fluidity of the situation and how I noticed that you've got a 2013 date as the more recent of the two of the two articles, but and probably written a year ago, and so much has happened. Uh, but maybe you want to hold that off to till the end. Hmm. Okay. Or, or I mean, not. I think it links up with some of the things that 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 well, that, 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 that that Neil has raised about what hap- what happens to the subaltern subjectivities, what 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 the subjects, what happens, and that's fluidity. I think what we're seeing now is a, uh, a, and this is something that I'm working on at the moment, trying to think, okay, what's happening? Okay, it's great to think that there is continued mobilization in these neighborhoods, but we're also seeing attempts to co-opt. The same, these same people, and neutral, and so through the one set of kind of discourses uh, that are um, structuring, organizing um, the normalization of the coup, so that the coup is being justified as in restoring law and order. You know, there is a lot of chaos on the streets and so on. There is a sense of insecurity. And, and and central to that production is that there are, there's you know the problem of thuggery, thuggery that is located in the popular neighborhoods. So in a, in a sense, we have a justification of uh, the return of the police and the mid and the uh, kind of the and the iron, appreciation of the return and appreciation yeah. and the iron fist of the of the army and so on, and it is directed against. The, these same people, but I think when we look at what's happening at local level, we see also cooptation in the name of fighting the Muslim Brotherhood. So it is may seem shocking, but not really surprising that in many of these neighborhoods, the thugs, whom we know that they are on the pay of the police, that it's the people uh, people have always said that the thugs are actually work for the police and there have been all kinds of research and reports that the, the police uh, employs thousands of, 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 of thugs. Um, so that, in fact, these are the ones that are supposedly protecting the neighborhoods, that are supposedly fighting the Muslim Brotherhood, and you see them armed, protecting police stations and public buildings and so on. Okay? So I think there is an attempt to neutralize that's what, how I see the new development, is to, to neutralize the popular potential for sustaining this uprising and revolution by this one, dividing the people among themselves. So you have the, the thugs uh, uh, who are undermining public order, but you also, at the same time, you're employing the thugs to maintain public order. Mm. So that's just one yeah. of, I don't know if that responds to it. So, um, yeah, new questions. Remember that questions over processes of mobilization, questions over processes of demobilization, questions of the relative importance of informal networks versus national, formally organized, 
and then questions over how does subjectivity become transform or, or does it suddenly flip from one to another uh, i.e. from defiance to submission or, or how can we, we further worry away at that or any other question <coughs> hmm. I was inter- interested in picking up on something that was coming through in the discussion just now. Sorry, I'm Mike Farker, a PhD student here, but I just submitted my PhD here at FC. Um, picking up on something that was just said in that discussion about kind of the appreciation of the return of the police that, I mean, that was visible and kind of um, was in Egypt uh, two weeks after Mazar quit. Um, and you heard that said a lot, but people were kind of were calling for the police to be back, but there was, um, it was a common thing that was kind of said. Um, and I was wondering if you could expand just a little more on whether this is just kind of a product of you know, the, the prisons and the people the base of the streets and kind of scare tactics on the part of the regime, um, or whether it's perhaps a continuation of a slightly more subtle sort of dialectic between sort of brute coercion and brute violence on the part of the police um, and some kinds of appeals to kind of consent, for, you know, consent for that violence, for the use of that violence. Um, yeah, so I mean, basically, this, the question I'm kind of um, edging my way towards is whether whether the police had, had become entirely vacated of all legitimacy, um, or whether there was some more kind of subtle um, interplay between consent and coercion uh, around their, their role in society um, going on at the point mm-hmm. just before the revolution kind of kicked off. Yeah, I don't think the poli- the there is. It's easy to say that. Um, we can generalise that the return of the police is welcomed by everyone. Um, no, no, I mean, I wasn't, I no. So I think there is a definitely, you know, uh, just to kind of simplify and be reductions for a while, I think there is on the part of the middle class a kind of a, yes, a welcome, welcoming of the, of the return of the police because of the discourse of insecurity that has been propagated. Yes, there have been, of, of course, um, there is reason to say that uh, there is a sense of insecurity because there has been an increase in crime and there's been uh, cases of kidnap and ransom and taking ransom and all of that happening. Uh, but was it to the extent of the, uh, the complete breakdown of law and order or the, the, the extent where everyone felt like their life was threatened? I'm not, I don't think that's the case. But the media, which has been very active um, in propagating um, the role of the army and so on and justifying it, uh, as well as the return of the police, had created, there was a discourse of insecurity that has been propagated. And I think the, 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 the recipients of this have been largely the middle classes. I, I, have, no, I have not really researched that what's going on to people in the popular neighborhoods feel that uh, uh, to, to this degree. Because my sense is, uh, given that security and um, is, is conventionally organized at neighborhood level anyway, they, they wouldn't. So I don't see there was a there would be a welcome of the return of the police in pop, popular neighborhoods at all. And in fact, for a long time, long after. So I mean, uh, on, on last last summer and in in, in a previous visits that I was in in Egypt. The, the absence of the police, there was still many people who appreciate the absence of the police. Uh, obviously, taxi drivers thought it was great that they could park in downtown Cairo 
you know, without, and they thought the revolution was worth it just for that, you know. Uh, but, but actually, no, seriously, it was obviously the a, a vindication of a certain right. Like, why do you stop us from stopping or parking when and actually we can stop and park? But, uh, but also, I think this, in that period, we saw uh, the flourishing of, quote-unquote, the informals. You look at um, downtown Cairo that was taken over by the informal peddlers and so on. You can say maybe they have bosses, uh, large merchants and entrepreneurs. But in fact, you can see actually, again, this was a very good context for the informals to use that bit of a vacuum to for building, so an expansion of informal housing throughout. And that also in, in, in middle-class, upper-middle-class neighborhoods, as well as in popular neighborhoods. But also the occupation of commercial, state, uh, commercial real estate in downtown Cairo, for instance, and all of these areas that these people have been shut out all of their lives. That is, to me, there was a logic of redistributive justice that was going on in the remaking of the city on the part of the people. And it could only be possible because the police was not there. Yes. Um, when, when you were explaining sort of uh, leading up to the revolution, this relationship of citizens and the everyday abuses, it's sort of a, a, a string that goes along all these popular neighborhoods. But after it happens, um, it's still sort of, it, it seems that every, everywhere might be the same. But to what extent have these sort of different neighborhoods become fragmented? where opportunities for political settlement vary from place to place, and then you will have different interests and different types of mobilization that might not lead to a unified way to, to access, but also might be delaying uh, progress or might be sort of directing things in different ways. Is there something to that? Will you just say, uh, introduce yourself? Oh, sorry, a PhD student from King's College. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, and it's something that is uh, it's happening, whereby attempts to divide and fragment people. So this can, can be like taken forward in the comparison with Syria, where already the fragmentation of urban space and of the populations had, had long history in Damascus, for instance, which I talk about in the paper. We, we can see similar type of divide and rule uh, of co-opting, of using the people against each other, uh, so that in some of these neighborhoods where it, the part of the struggles are about tight, uh, defending the title to land and the right to remain in those areas and so on, it's from within the population itself that there is cooptation for those who would settle, those who would monitor, um, you know, not the, the return, so that the those the, the the evicted residents won't return. All of that um, um, kind of from within the population fragmentation. Uh, but, but yeah, that's go that's going on definitely. Uh, yeah, uh, my name is Harry. I'm a PhD student uh, in geography department. Yeah. Um, I yeah, I think your paper raises really interesting questions about who is who is allowed to kind of conduct themselves as a revolutionary, um, and it, they're really really interesting kind of class negotiations of that. Also, but, and who controls the kind of representation of a how a revolutionary subject should act, i.e., how was you know who was controlling the representation of Tahrir uh, as kind of middle class during the January twenty fifth movement, or um, and you know and you know because this in my experience I was there last summer as well, and um, 
it was very different also from revolutionaries themselves, like middle class revolutionaries also saying that all oh, the crowd's really different in Tahrir at this time, like it's you know, it's mm -hmm. um in mm -hmm. there. You know, it's it's not the same people. It's not the same atmosphere. It's a bad atmosphere. There, there's kind of idealization of CC. There's there's more uh, more kind of um, uh, yeah, like sexual abuse going on, and like all of these kind of tropes that were used to potentially stereotype that crowd last summer as not they weren't the right revolutionaries. They weren't like the right kind of middle class revolutionaries that can therefore kind of um, conduct themselves in the right way. And I, yeah, I guess, I think, yeah, your paper kind of really kind of opens up these really interesting questions about how, and, and also thinking relation, in terms of relationality of class, I mean, in terms of how the popular, popular forces understand themselves against the middle classes, and how the middle classes can construct their identities against popular forces as well. Um, and kind of, yeah, I think those tensions are really interesting, and, and yeah. Well, thank you. I mean, I would just say that actually all the way back in February 2011, I, w I was in, in Damascus and um, I was really worried about leaving um, uh, uh, Damascus because I didn't think they'll let me back again. So I wanted to go to Cairo. Finally, I went to Cairo in February, uh, and towards the end of February. And um, I met with some of the organizers of the event of 25th, I think Khaled Abdel Halim. Abdel Halim. I mentioned him, I interviewed him. And him and I think with um, Ziad Al-Alimi and others were having this conversation of, oh, you know, let's go to Tahrir, but the scene is not good. Oh, you know, there are all of the vendors, the batata sellers ready. Like, you know, they were think they had produced Tahrir in certain terms. So whereby there shouldn't have been expressions of popular class in it, you know, in it, or to this extent that would appear so dominant. So this was back in February 2011. You know, of, of, and of course, the whole discourse about the Suwar and the Baltaga uh, gets framed immediately after that. And as soon as uh, the, we see the pitched battles of Muhammad Mahmoud Street and Mansur Street and so on, and they don't seem like those nice middle class kids anymore, you know, that they become the Baltagaya. I mean, they were obviously central from day one, but once. Uh, uh, you know, the, the civilized behavior of cleaning the, the square and so on is not what is on TV, but rather those battles. Then it, we have the discourse of Altageya and, and, and the exclusion of you know, popular class from this narrative completely. Yeah. But I, I think this is, I mean, just I want it to go away from perhaps the focus of today's, but where I'm taking the work this is one direction is that I think a bigger struggle that is going on here is the struggle between popular Cairo and on the other side global and cosmopolitan Cairo and so the exclusionary discourses and practices go beyond just the events of the revolution to whole segments of the of the urban population that should not be seen or heard and should be kind of shunted and banished to the peripheries, through the eviction, it is almost like global Cairo somehow rediscovered popular Cairo, central Cairo, coveted and don't want the people in it, want to empty it. They're doing it in cultural terms, they're doing it in economic terms, that's all. I know this is kind of going a bit further, but... Uh, okay. Uh, Martin Henry's Foreign Office. Um, 
kind of three sets of questions. Firstly, um, I think you're right to downplay the importance of kind of the, the kind of Twitterati and all that. But um, there are other groups that have, have and had the ability to mobilize in Egypt and have done since 2005-ish. I mean, one is the Brotherhood when they came to the party quite late, and the other one is organized labor, because I mean, certainly since uh, April the 6th, 2008, there was coordination between different strikes and different organized labor movements. So I wonder how you think that they impacted on events uh, of January uh, 25th. Um, second set of questions is around June the 30th and how you see mobilization then. I mean, how was it similar to January the 25th? How much had it been co-opted and arranged by bits of the regime who wanted to destabilize or even overthrow and worse even you know, reject the June the 30th. So, so how did June the 30th mobilize? And a third, I guess, is a kind of a very kind of practical foreign office question, which is kind of what happens now? You know, where and how might you see popular? I won't tell you even if I know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, I my narrative is not meant to at all uh, downplay or discount other social forces. Therefore, I do acknowledge the role of youth activists. I think it's very important, and as well as the labor movement. Although we know that in the early days of Tahrir, they were the mobilizers, but they do actually once they get their act together, they do mobilize and become important. I see the labor movement as very important. Um, beyond the, um, these events, if, and that's a, a big if, if they actually do organize the informal sector. They, you know, they talk about doing this. I met with some of the uh, labor organizers, uh, Sabri, I think, I can't remember his first name, but in any case, they talked about um, organizing in, in the construction sectors, they talked about organizing IT sector and so on. I think, so in the service sector, if they do organize, and that's what some, that's a one avenue whereby the labor force can regain uh, greater strength beyond, because you have to keep in mind the retrenchment of organized labor in, in Egypt. I mean, with this, the wholesale sale of state enterprises, you had a, a, a retrenchment of uh, organized and former labor. Uh, whereby then, in fact, um, you know, become centered around certain industries, the textile industries, for instance, or you know, where where you had the the early April sixth movement in two thousand and eight. Um, and but but it is I I see it as while still uh, relevant, it, if it does not organize to reach out to the sectors of the population, the informal labor, and I think the construction work, uh, sector is the largest. Uh, they will not be able to, you know, uh, uh, um, be a big actor in mobilization. Uh, it's just a question of numbers and who they can reach up. And don't forget that the Muslim Brotherhood did organize, in fact, just, just as did the secular left, and therefore they couldn't mobilize as well the workers. It's not, so the, the labor is divided in ideologically. It's not a... Uh, kind of unified uh, along only just, you know, for uh, quote-unquote sectoral interests. What was your other question? June the 30th. June the, I, d I don't know what happened in June the 30th. I mean, I haven't done sufficient research to say. My just impressionistic um, 
sense is that you had everybody. You had the uh, the revolutionaries and you had the counter-revolutionaries. Who, how many, you know, who is more than the other? Which of the, the it's very difficult. I mean, the so many forces were mobilized. Uh, it's it's difficult to say, you know, who had the upper hand. I mean, everyone didn't want the Muslim Brotherhood. I mean, everyone that was mobilized didn't want the Muslim Brotherhood. But it's difficult to say they were all the counter-revolutionary forces. No, because there were also a lot of we know a lot of the uh, um, the pro-revolution forces were also mobilized. And, but and there was a dynamic in that it was um, it was kind of middle class that almost picked the date. So you started off with at the beginning of the May the idea of this the the signature campaign, which was kind of you know a, a lot of people poured scorn on because there was no proof that if they had these signatures, they were only getting hundreds of people out in the streets when they tried to, to organise in April May, and then suddenly it clicked into something. Uh, just before June the 30th. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's something that... I, I can tell you they did reach out to a lot of people. I mean, that's, you know, again, impressionistic account from just talking to family and friends, people that would not have been normally involved, you know, at all, who actually signed. So the signature, there is enough to say that they was in town. But it's, I think we, this is something that requires research to know exactly, you know, uh, before June 30th, the, um, the level of anti-Muslim Brotherhood feelings in the country was great. Yeah. There is yeah. no doubt about it. And uh, I, 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 was, I watched uh, actually The Square last night. Uh, my husband suggested that I should actually watch it. I don't know. <laughs> but in any case, and I think it was interesting that comment, the woman, you know, the uh, Magdi's mother, when she says, you know, they... Everybody is anti-Morsi, you know. The the butcher says, "Oh, he curses Morsi." Oh, but why? Oh, it's, it's too hot. I mean, that was literally. But that was exactly <laughs> what was going on. Okay, yeah. <laughs> it was. I mean, the I was. Cli- in, the climate. He, uh, yeah. he feels physically too hot, it's, so he's cursing Morsi. Yes. Right. Yeah. So everyone was cursing Morsi, and it was happening everywhere. And so that incident that is narrated in the film, I heard so much about many incidents like it. Happening at butcher shops, happening in with me personally in taxi with taxi drivers everywhere. There was a cursing of the Muslim Brotherhood and Morsi for all the ills of the country. That in fact, no one was saying this is a thirty-year accumulation. They were saying, "Oh, it's the Ikhwan and whatever." Of course, we cannot ignore the role of the media again. I mean, the media have done an amazing job in there. Yes. Hi, I'm Chris Harker, a lecturer in geography at Durham. Um, I wondered if, um, drawing on your like long-standing research, you could talk about the excessiveness of the everyday. Uh, what, what I like about your papers, it shows that the state is very everyday, uh, as much as kind of people's lives. But uh, I mean, it's a, in, in relation to this question about process, do we do, does this kind of excessiveness beyond the state in a, in a kind of everyday sense. Do, mm. do you see any kind of transformations in that over the, the kind of period you've done? I'm not sure I understand what you mean by excessiveness. So uh, you, you started to hint at it a little bit in terms of, you mentioned the council of elders um, trying to solve problems sort of beyond the remit of government, um, which in a way is still the, the sort of react, or it depends exactly how it happened, but it could be seen as kind of reaction to kind of 
state forms of governance, but just kind of forms of uh, civic governance or family governance that, that's kind of be, either has a kind of negative relation or, or perhaps to be truly excessive just doesn't have a relation to kind of state forms of government through uh, the mm-hmm. police mainly, I guess. Mm-hmm. Are you over? <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure I, I'm, I'm catching exactly uh, what you're saying, but I mean, a number of things. One, I mean, what you're saying just triggered to me that I'm, I don't want to be romanticizing the everyday. I mean, I do not talk about... Well, how about if you shift it to the space of the neighborhood then? Yeah, sense of place, for example. Yeah, I mean, I think what I want, where I, another direction I would like to take is that we start thinking about this in terms of figurations of space. That actually, if we see, and and it's something that I'm just kind of reflecting on, that if we think of what was happening at the neighborhood as a constellation of actors with connections, and that these constellations connect with other constellations elsewhere, you know, and and that we saw this connection during the revolution, but that that's something that is going on. Uh, So, um, so, I mean, when I kind of try to have a mental image of the neighborhood I, and of the streets of Cairo, it is a bit of like a, as I said, a figuration. It's a bit of a choreography. There is a still and there is movement. Okay? And, it, and, and there is a connection between past and present. And I don't think of it in, as a kind of a diachronic. I think of it as synchronic. What happened kind of parallels, connects with what's happening. So, you know, that, that those scenes of the young men standing in the neighborhood uh, alleys, you know, and maybe staring back at the police officers connect with the moments that we do, do see with the, when there is that bloody confrontation with the, you know, in the clashes with the police later on with the security forces. But I see these mo- moments and these constellations are very much connected. So maybe I can ask a question, uh, and it does it does have to do with because uh, I, I think it's quite uh, an in, I think an in, it's an interesting moment uh, because this question of uh, what to what extent did new forms of subjectivity, uh, transgressive contention, modes of organisation. To what extent, in your account, do they come into being? Mm. Because um, because maybe they don't. Uh, and just to say, just to just to sort of push you on that, just to go along the line of thought that says, actually, what Salois Mayer argues in her paper, it, it doesn't really point to very significant shifts, e.g., at the level of subjectivity. So, for an example, when you have this question of. Um, uh, page 878 in uh, the, the CSSH article. This One of these confrontations with the police, uh, the contradiction and tension between their self-identity of Ibn al-Balan or Sunayi al-Hur. And that, that's the kind of, that's the counterclaim. That's what's being violated. Mm. And then it's mm. being violated by a practice of violence. Or... Uh, in the other article, at one point, there's somebody who describes to you the, the humiliating encounter with the police, and this happens in a stadium. He says, you know, demi hor, uh, you know, my blood is free, uh, you know, this is why I feel violated. So the, there's, the, there's the, and always there's different ways of constructing a violation. So on the one side, 
uh, an act of violence by the police, and then a counterclaim, and, and Ibn al-Balad, I'm a son of the country, I'm a, I'm a gida'ah, I'm a, uh, a solid guy, you know, regular, regular dude. Or, or with the, um, the seizure of the scales and the vendor who's upset because he's trying to earn a living. And the, but then there's another term that you refer to, which is a sense of injustice. So there's injustice. And then, so there's all these forms of subjectivity at work which form part of the counterclaims which can describe what a violation is and that build up, especially in the Egypt piece, you know, they just build up everywhere with the police, constant. And so you have that situation and then you describe a sort of a flip. You know, it could be that they just, there's submission and, and rancor and a sense of violation and injustice or using the same categories uh, and uh, Ibn al-Balad, you know, this is what a respectable person... And, and they also say, remember, the language you look at, there's this idea of being respectable and civilised. You know, uh, I'm a civilised person, so I do this. Or I'm a respectable person. You know, etc. And so there's all those languages at work. And, and again, and that language of respect, which could be used to imply that I don't seek my person to be violated by the police... Or, I mean, I've heard the word respect invoked by people saying, people don't respect the police anymore. Mm. They don't respect them. That's why there's all this traffic and it's all a mess and what a disaster. And so that kind of language, but it still turns on this issue of respect. And, and as you show, the language of Baltagia. It's the same language, but it's deployed in different ways by different sectors. Some think it's, you know... And, and it came out a bit, I thought, that... With, it was associated by certain, I think they were Islamists in the quarters that you interviewed, who said it was to do with drug dealers and alcoholics. They were the Baltagir. And then, or they were in the pay of the police, or, of course, there was the middle-class media version of the Baltagir. But it's all about Baltagir. So anyway, so these terms, Baltagir, Ihtiram, Geda'a, Civilised, Ibn al-Balad, they seem to be continuous through the whole process. And there's a sort of a sudden flip... And I must admit, it did strike me, and it puzzled me ever since I heard it, which is I interviewed a, uh, a Salafi flower seller from downtown Cairo in uh, February 2011, and, or, or a bit later, maybe it was March. And, and, and I said, what's going to happen? Because I was trying to push him, because of course he said he trusted the army. And I said, well, what about if the army starts doing the bidding of the United States and Israel, which of course I expect it to do? And he said, no, no, no. And I said, no, no, what about if it does? And he said, because, you know, they're not going to tear up Camp David anytime soon. And he said, um, well, we'll just do it again. We'll just do it again. We'll go to the square and do it again. And, I, and I, it puzzled me. ever since. I thought, gosh, you know, he's just saying we're going to do it again. And, and almost, but that would speak to this issue of, of a sort of a continuous subjectivity, one that doesn't actually change. So in a way, your question, where are the process of mobilisation, will... Uh, maybe the way I would rephrase it is thinking of how do we, there isn't that much rearticulation going on. That's how I. Or is that just totally a, a, a false reading of what you're of what you're saying? No, I'm, I'm I'm saying is that we have an oppositional subject, but performing differently. I think, in a sense, or we have different performances of subjectivity. Uh, but there is a situational dynamic. I think. I'm 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 saying that. Mm. In this part, it, we had a context. I mean, they, the, the mo- there were attempts to mobilize before January 25th by the same group of people, right? So going to different neighborhoods on different occasions. So this was attempted many, many times before. Mm. Um, I, 
but then it didn't really lead to this. There would be some mobilization, but it didn't lead to this large mass mobilization. I think what we've, what was po- it was possible maybe this time, and it may not be for a while, and may happen again, is that the con- it, it seemed as the networks were um, the, of family, of neighborhood, and so on were mobilized. They could. S- and marched onto their first of all uh, the squares in their neighborhoods, but then confronted the police and carried on. They they could see the possibility of success. So I think there is some. I, mean, I don't want to argue here as a rational actor, whatever. But I mean, in that situation, it seemed possible to continue. It, you know, a mass. That there was a. I think the the amount of mobilization. So previously, limited mobilization undermined. You know, may perhaps because the police was very very quickly spread and, and uh, um, de- um, deployed and so on. Mm. Um, so I, I think that the grounds for action were there. The mobilization was happening on small scale. In this particular context, it, it, it went beyond that small scale. We had a large scale mobilization. Um, but it's not inevitable. It could have also continued for a while like that. Mm. Right. I know I'm not giving you, but I don't. You see, I'm not going to. I'm not advocating a social movement or social movement organization approach to explain, and I cannot see the grounds for it. I cannot see a social movement organization happening that justifies this. If you do see it, tell me. But okay, but would it? What about if we said, what are the thing, the things that you're describing, which may well be absolutely accurate and true, but leaving that question aside, are the things you're describing what Antonio Gramsci called common sense, spontaneous philosophy, and proverbial wisdom? Is that as which, of course, Gramsci would always say have to be linked to some other, you know, critical, abstract programmatic subjectivity and formal organization in order to, you know, create the socialist revolution? Or, or is that really not what you're describing? No, that's not what I'm describing. I'm <laughs> that's not what I'm describing. I'm saying that um, you had... Well, I said, I'll repeat what I said at the beginning. You just... I, 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 you know, you had resources and capacities from the everyday. Mm. You had enough. You had networks of the everyday, um, and it's in this particular context. It w- we've seen this kind of expression or manifestation on a national or at a at least at the level of the city. We've seen it throughout. It connected. It could have stayed in limited in one neighborhood. It was possible. Uh, for all kinds of, you know, for the just once you've had the mass mobilization, so you had you had the ground, but you the, the, it could have been con- it could have been also controlled. It's not like it was inevitable that it wasn't controlled. Okay, so if you had more police shooting out on people, perhaps I don't know. If you didn't have the police retreating from the street, uh, if the army, you know, as happened in 1977, when the army intervened. Okay, you had very similar processes in 1977. Then the army intervened. So if we, we cannot discount the fact that the army did not intervene, for instance. Mm. Mm. 
Yeah, just to be clear, I'm not pushing you to try and create a social media <laughs> framework for your work in, in the least bit. I think. It would be <laughs> um, so. So, so, but I'm not, and it's, not, and it's not also the flip, as in, uh, oh, it's one day they're submissive, it's one day they are. No, I'm, I'm just saying it's situational. So you need to look very closely at the context in a particular situations. The day. You know, and all of the kind of uh, processes of thinking, yes, there may be a common sense at, at, at some level, but um, the, um, all I'm saying is that the individual who today is submissive doesn't mean he's submissive in the sub abstract or that he is in a, a kind of in the absolute is submissive subjectivity. He's also part of that person, part of the subjectivity for his political, her political subjectivity is that of a kind of oppositional and rebellious that is not performed, performed on that occasion, but can be performed on another occasion. Mm. So if we think, again, the example of Ba'azizi, you know, Ba'azizi must have been slapped. This is an everyday happening all the time. Mm. Why did Ba'azizi choose, okay, his, one can say, act of des- desperation, spectacular act of heroism, whatever you want to, to act that way that day, mm. right? Mm. Uh, you, you know, up, so... Yeah. Yeah. Harry. Yeah, um, so I, I was, I think it's um, really interesting in terms of going back to what you were saying about, so you wanted to do further research on, yeah, the negotiation between top popular carrier and global liberalized carrier, um, and kind of the, this, uh, the relationality between the two, and, and so I haven't read, you know, very much of your work, of course, but like, it maybe seems that, you know, these forms of subjectivity are very localized, and and therefore, how do we understand their subjectivity in, in uh, how they understand themselves on a broader scale, on a national scale? Mm. How do they understand themselves in terms of you know, class dynamics on, on a broader scale than their local kind of negotiations with the police? And, and, how, and, and how do they understand yeah, the kind of negotiation between popular Cairo and the kind of global Cairo? Or if they don't, if they're kind of not aware of it, how can we sort of build these broader processes into an analysis of these sort of everyday happenings, um, and uh, and also, and of course, you know, kind of more even transnational processes and kind of imaginations of, and dreaming of, you know, and how these, you know, the people in popular quarters dream of of social mobility and transnational social mobility, and how do we build these sorts of uh, things in? And because, yeah, um, some some uh, participants that I interview. If it, um, from areas like Anshamsa are very, you know, they're, they're also aware of their in, inability to become socially mobile in terms of they're aware of corruption in the education system or in the employment market, the need for social connections. Um, and so, it, you know, this, perhaps the police is kind of some sort of face that they are able to have, uh, act against and like kind of battle against, but it's actually behind the police is obviously a lot more complex processes and things that they can't actually have no control over. Hmm. Yeah, I think these are really good questions. And, and um, my sense is that the struggles at local level do connect even if people don't know each other, in the sense that they are aware, first of all, remember the discourse of Ashwa'iyat. They are aware they belong to a city-wide and a national-wide group that has been called, or a social force that has been called al-Ashwa'iyat, that has been stigmatized as the 
the people who are involved in crime and trans all kinds of transgressive acts, that who have no culture uh, or low culture, and so on. So there is that um, connection in the production of those areas, and they are aware of that, and they counter it by saying we are civilized, we are respected, and that same language gets used across from one neighborhood into another, okay? And that to talk about themselves as sanayi, so all of these various locations that they, you know, that they are occupying, the socioeconomic, they are aware of the connections they have, even if, so whether it is in Matareya, in Shams, and so on. It is true that in my early work, they make a distinction between Shabi Adzim and Shabi Kizit, you know, old popular neighborhood and new popular hood, and there was a sense of the old popular hood had more authenticity than new one, you know, lacks the authenticity and so on. But the sense of the popular enters into the identity. And part of my argument in the paper, and it's something that I need to flesh out and work on more, is that this identity is important to the production of sub the subaltern. It is by virtue of this identity that are produced by the upper classes, the, the well-off and so on, as in a kind of stigmatized, the subordinated terms they are and treated in this way. They understand that that identity is part of their subordination, but they also produce that identity as part of their resistance. So that it is the repository of authenticity, of gadana, and all of that. That doesn't, is not in one neighborhood alone. It is across. There is a shabby culture, you know. Of course it's changed. I do not want to, again, romanticize or attribute fixity to it. Today, the struggle against the shabby, for instance, in, we have that movement. It hasn't become, it's not as strong, but, you know, the terms used against shabby now is sarsagi. you know. Uh, and there is a national uh, uh, campaign against the sarsagaya. Uh, stereotyped uh, as those who wear certain kinds of clothes, put so much gel on their hair, you know, have the big belt with the big, uh, they have the belt with the big um, buckle and, and, and whatever. So we have a certain stereotypical production of a, part, of a particular cultural practices on the part of popular neighborhoods, the young men particularly, you know, so they're thugs, they're sarsagi, they like culture and, and this and that. They're aware of that as well, and they have their counterproduction. I think we need to look at the... So, so much is happening in terms of the music production, in terms of the sociability practices, and so on, that build up to this kind of a transformative and opposition as well. So it's not just about the encounters with the police. I mean, to go back to the points that John, you mentioned, is... There is, a, there is also transformation. It's not just about you know, traditional identity and, and these. And so the practices in the stadium and, the pra and, and, the, and, and other kinds of um, cultural productions are also innovations. You know, the ultras, and, and the, ultras, you know, you, you know, the ultras are neighborhood-based. They have sections of in the various neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. And the ultras lead mobilization in the neighborhoods. That's a new development. In terms of the performances, in terms of the ideas, the cultural productions, and so on. It is not, cannot all be, say, oh, this is authentic, shabby, whatever. Mm. 
Oh, yes, I definitely wasn't trying to imply a traditional or authentic. I mean, Gramsci doesn't use those terms in that way. He totally rejects the sort of no, Benedetto Croce view of popular culture no, but, but emanating I mean, from the purity of the people. I'm responding to what yeah. you said about, yeah. like, okay, what, was there innovation? Yeah. You know, so okay. there is innovation. Right. But at the level of the subjective categories that I mentioned or at the level of some performances that are associated I, I, with practices of Yeah, I mean, I, I imagine that there would be also at the level of the subjective, there would be innovation. I mean, it's not something that I looked at very closely, but I can mm. imagine if it's coming out in cultural production, in new forms of cultural production and practices, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's something that needs to be researched, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Neil, do you want to come back? Oh, at the, well, I'll, I'll let's hear sure. keep it. Uh, mm. I'm Matty from I'm a Moss student at SARS. Um, I just wanted to ask again about this, uh, the subjectivity being formed in, in uh, distinction to the police in, in everyday life. Um, and I know one of your arguments is that uh, there's an increasing securitization of the quarters that went hand in hand with uh, the turn to neoliberalism. I was just wondering, so implicit in that is a, a kind of an indirect um, kind of um, figuring of, of the economic policy in, in consciousness. I was wondering if there was, if you, from your experience, if, if there was a more kind of, um, if, if sort of the, the subjectivity was, was formed in, in um, distinction to the government um, along the lines of um, economic policy in a more direct form of consciousness and and that particular thing about humiliation you talk mm. about a lot about humiliation um, as arising in everyday encounters of the police I was wondering if uh, that could also be applied to um, one's social being you know particularly um, unemployment whether there's you know discourse of humiliation surrounding that and whether that means that um, so there's a more there's quite a conscious um, subjectivity defined against um, kind of mm. economic policy, and mm. I'm particularly mm. thinking of that as, as being quite relevant to uh, the mobilisation against Morsi, and sort of po- the, sort of in the year after, it's a couple of years after, and see how that um, that subjectivity um, is sustained. Mm. Yeah, I think the economic dimension is is very central to their uh, production of, of of self and positioning, in the sense that you know from earlier on when I was interviewing, they would make distinction. Not, not only in relationship to the better off, but also in by virtue of the education, what job employment, so who's likely to get a job on the market, they know that those who've had the language training and, and, and so on. Um, and, uh, and, and the fact that the kind of jobs is the kind of jobs that they occupy that also puts them, those informal jobs that put them, uh, you know, uh, that makes them not respectable, so being a Sanai is not respected by the police or being a mechanic and so on, and puts them in, 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 in a, a kind of a lower and stigmatized position. But also the, their, the economic hardship that they have and their humiliation. I mean, I do talk about this in, in earlier on in reference to you know, how uh, that kind of withdrawal with welfare made them reliant on networks of charity. And that, of course, is not, it undermines their sense of being a citizen. If they need to produce themselves as worthy subjects of charity, you know, that was, that's a, another, uh, an unemployment and, and so on. But I mean, I can tell you something from one my most recent interviews in Bula Abul Ayla in, in April 2013, 
when I went to, to talk about the incident where uh, I mean I was looking this is um, in Ramla Bula where there, there is attempts of eviction removing the people from from there because the Sawira's tower is just next door and Sawira's owns the land has bought much of the land and wants to build with some Saudi uh, investor uh, some towers and commercial uh, estates and so on and um the it, the confrontation immediate confrontation happened when the police shot one of the young men of the area shot dead one of the young men of the area when he went to the Sawira's towers the Nile towers demanding payment for protecting the tower now he has he was produced as a baltagi as a thug now the people said the response was no he's not baltagi and they were not baltageya they used to have really good um, skilled workers jobs until the police picked on them and turned and kind of um, so under police continuous um, arrest or questioning and so on they turned to other illegal activities maybe I don't I mean I don't know the details of did they turn to the uh, drug trade or, or any of that but the point is that as I mentioned also in the paper, the police and, of course, the failure of the government are responsible for producing them as illegal, in, you know, as illegal kind of citizen or citizens engaged in illegal economic activities. So in defense of Amr al-Bunni, who was shot dead, no, he was not a thug. He used to be a skilled worker, but, you know, he was pushed, you know, um, and ended up like doing this kind of service to the rich, is protecting the rich, and then ends up being shot dead. So it enters into a particular narrative of who they are, that that uh, precarity of their economic situations and the kind of jobs they can and they can't do, and and so on. Yes, absolutely. But I think at the same time, with with I from all of the interviews I've done, it it shows to me that there isn't a waiting for the government to provide jobs as it used to be decades ago. I mean, the idea is that people will fend for themselves. They just don't want government undermining them. Yeah. Um, hi, I'm Desiree. I'm a master's student here at LFC in comparative politics. And um, you had just mentioned briefly in response to another comment something about how this was not at all inevitable. The outcome was, you know, in no way inevitable, that it could have gone very differently, that similar mobilization in different contexts had gone very differently. And I was wondering if you could just speak a little bit to what you see as the limits of this sort of everyday networks and local neighborhood mobilization to, to sort of really affect the sort of change. Yeah, I think I see the limits as the possibility of fragmentation, the possibility of cooptation, and we do see it happening uh, in some of these neighborhoods, you know, whereby people are being turned against uh, each other. Um, so whether it is in the discourse... Um, about you know thuggery and so on, or with the cooptation, and but this is why I will go back to I don't want to be romanticizing the neighborhood because there is a lot else of the social architecture of these neighborhoods that I didn't touch on, which I talk about in my other work: clientelism, hierarchy, social hierarchy, violence, and so on. That but that wasn't the subject of of this particular talk. But there is so much else in the everyday that can also be undermining or counter to. You know, a mobilization and, and so on. I mean, we have. It is not a. It's not just a kind of one romantic 
you know, uh, image of uh, the people's heroism. It, there is a lot more going on in there. And, and clientelism and clientelization was before January 25th, 2011, continues and continues. Yeah. Um, just to kind of preface, I, I'm not arguing for a kind of reconstructed social movement theory. Like, actually, that's, that's, that's not so much what I'm interested in than, than as, as kind of a couple of other questions I've touched on, trying to kind of hone in on the coordinates of social action, why something happens when it does, where it does, and it takes the form that it does. And I think you can take, you can definitely tell a real part of that story, why it takes the form that it does. Why do they target police stations? Because there's a tradition of targeting police stations. You know, on, in protests now in, in Helouen, some of my informants, they talk about, um, you know, there's, there's this famous saying in an Adel de Mem film, you know, Europa al Burdu Montacadima, you know, like the, 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 it's El Hagwal Kiveron, about Mugamma. And they now say. Just translate that. Um, 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 sorry, it's, 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 it's a character in this, in this film about the, 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 the failure, the failure, Adel de Mem, who's this kind of very famous, charismatic. Uh, Egyptian actor, and the film's about the kind of the failure of, of Egyptian bureaucracy, and they get so pissed off when they go to this big Soviet-style bureaucratic building. This kind of otherwise respectable middle-class guy becomes a terrorist and takes up a weapon. And the, one of the one of the the employees has this line that's become part of the kind of popular lexicon, which is, "But in Europe, it doesn't happen. You know, Europe in the developed states, drawing the parallel between." You know, the failure of everyday um, Egyptian bureaucracy and this kind of imagined utopia across you know the other side of the Mediterranean. Um, and but now they, there's a, they've they've transformed this the the, the, the kind of anti Q protesters they now say Helwen will do the because the Helwenis are leading the kind of new innovative tactics against against the coup and one of the things they do is they they um, if they if the women especially there's, there's this whole narrative about you have to protect the women they say the women are the red line and the sel khatul akhla and uh, if women get arrested on, on protests in Helwen the local community will surround the police station and bring out the weapons and demand that they return them. And that, of course, predates this mobilization. This is clearly, and, and my point here is that you can tell part of that story very, very well in terms of the form. It's simply, my point is, is trying to kind of hone in at what point is this, you know, what's called scale shift? When is it that they, mm. that they leave the alleys? Because it seems mm. to me, looking at the pattern of mobilization now, the regime is very happy for them to stay in the popular quarters. Mm. Mm. It's, the, it's when they go near Madans and, and public buildings that they start getting attacked. I mean, the brothers have been trying out for six months to reoccupy a public square after, you know, Rabah and Madan and after, you know, Gramsiz, uh, Motoreya, Elfin on the third anniversary of the revolution. And the regime is, you know, that's where the regime feels its weaknesses. It's not in the popular courses. They're quite happy to have your, your Mesirat Hashida, you know, these kind of wandering rallies that go through the residential streets. They don't really attack those very much. It's when there are public challenges to authority. And I think that speaks also to your point about state power and about how you know, people know through their everyday interactions what the state can do and what it can't do and what it doesn't like. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what more I'm going towards rather than having some kind of hydraulic, mm-hmm. mechanical kind of mm-hmm. social movement theory. It's just a curiosity of explaining social, social action and why it happens where it does. Mm-hmm. The question I really want to ask you, which I think you might say something really interesting about, is we talked about the articulation of you know the revolutionary subject. We've talked about the role, this kind of amorphous category of Baltagaya. But what about the Fulu? And mm. what about um, the Hizbul Kanaba, which is this other kind of amorphous category of people? And Fulu being you know the stated counter-revolutionary other, but one that curiously, a bit like John's example of the Salafi flower seller in downtown Cairo, doesn't include the army. 
right? And it doesn't include the deep state in many ways. It's really a Hezbollah wanting it's the it's, it's Mubarak's NDP. And who really articulates this? Where does this come from? I, I never, I've never quite understood it. Because in a sense, like, like the, John... Like the provenance it, of the category Fulud. Uh-huh. That's the question. Right. right. Okay. Um, and why is it that there is this kind of like curious, I don't know, resistance to acknowledge that the Egyptian army cannot act in anything but the best interests of the nation? Even in the face of like incredible evidence that, that they're in the pocket of the Israelis and the Americans, still people refuse to really take, you know, confront them. And the second question is, is about Hezbollah Canada. What does that mean? Is that a subaltern group? Is that a, because Hezbollah Canada is literally the party of the sofa, the people that watch the revolution happen. And in many ways, Egyptian politics feels like it's a fight to win over the Hezbollah Canada. And, and the 30th of June is often seen as people say, the reason why there was so much mobilization is because finally the Hezbollah Canada came out onto the streets. And, but who does that really mean? And, 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 and yeah, what is the provenance of it? I don't know where the provenance of Fulul is. Uh, but I think, you know, it's interesting that Fulul has become, of course, we have a television station, a satellite station, the Fulul. <laughs> so I don't know if any of you know Sanal Masri, uh, who became very famous when she produced a video uh, cursing Obama uh, for supporting Morsi, supposedly, uh, and telling him, you know, he's got to tell Morsi to leave now, uh, the same way he told Mubarak he had to go. Uh, but in any case, and, and actually has had more than a million hit with imputes, I think, that video, with lots of Americans writing saying, oh, we agree with you. Uh, but, you know. Uh, so where she has a, this satellite station saying Fulul, and we now have a lot of media personality very proudly declaring themselves that they are Fulul. Fulul are the remnants of the National Democratic Party. In the first year of the revolution, it was not possible for anyone to say, I'm Fulul. But by the second year, and now, it, some, many of the actors, actresses, mm-hmm. and others are very proud to... So, yes, we have a kind of a formation of a group called the Fulul, and it keeps on... And it is the country revolutionary forces, but now they become legitimate. Um, but is it acceptable? No, because we also have the counter slogan of on uh, uh, you know about the uh, those who have betrayed the revolution, and they are the Fulul, the Ikhwan, and the Askar. Now we have a movement against the Askar, against the military. Would it really you know kind of uh, so? While yes, there is a um, um, there is reluctance to criticize the military. There isn't the sense of the military as being the enemy, as in the case of Syria. I mean, in Syria, from day one, it was known that the military was the enemy. You know, from the uh, the first days of the uprising, it was known. It was said the military's hands were uh, bloody from the Hama events and so on, and, and so and there were expectation that they would engage in this extreme violence. That was not the case in, 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 in Egypt. But does it mean that people trust? No, but there has been, again, I would go back, there is a public discourse, there has been a rhetoric and propaganda have been very effective. I mean, it's interesting that the people, middle class, who have for years and years were anti-army, uh, anti-military, and always said the country was ruined by Nasser, are the ones who are supporting Sisi. Okay. Who see who see Sisi as the savior? These are the ones for years that you know talked about Nasser as the dictator and as the reason behind. So we have a kind of a shift in, ju- in modes of justification, and one can say to what extent this is really produces 
and you know, there are questions about consistency, coherence, and, and all of that. I mean, how do people reconcile? What kind of deliberation that leads you to say you're anti-Nasser and hate Nasser, but yet you're really pro-Sisi? Okay. What kind of mental uh, exercise <laughs> that is, you know, and what kind of deliberation went on? I think these are all things that are being now kind of sorted out. But I am not, I would not be in a, uh, as pessimistic as to think the army is actually a red line. I don't think it is. We've seen in, the, in, in 2011 and 2012, all of the anti-army demonstration, you know, and, all, and that was very powerful for a very long time. The media whipped up a certain hysteria, but I mean, you know, it's going to be it's part of the process. Mm. At least I hope. What about, I'm dying to ask, because, I mean, you're a researcher who spent an awful lot of time looking at the police, and then you write about the Egypt uprising, and the police are all there, and they're very, 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 very important. And then you go to Syria, and bam, there's no police at all in your article on Syria. So, but I mean, surely, to begin with, weren't you looking for them? Weren't you surprised when they're not there? They're not part of the account, and why is that? And, And maybe... Does it, I mean, because what people often say on the streets of Egypt is they say, you know, we love the army, we hate the police. And, but, so, but in Syria, it seems you're saying they expect the army to be a killing machine. What do they say about the police and why aren't they I present in that account? I didn't hear just... much of the police. The talk is always about the undercover security officers yeah. and yeah, they're yeah. the ones that are identified. You know, I mean, you know what they dress like and who they are and where they are. Um, And so that these are the ones that are kind of present in the narrative. I don't talk about them in in the article, but they are part. I mean, there's I would be talking about Mm. that, and when I discuss, Mm. you know, political subjectivity in Syria Mm. and how the subject was formed in relation to that. But how are they so different? How are those two countries so different? They are very different because you don't have the same institution of the police in. In, in, in Syria. Yeah. You know? And and is it is it reasonable? But you have the equivalent in the security and in, yes. in the security right. forces. But not in the police. Not in the police. Yeah. Very interesting. What about someone who hasn't asked a question yet? Can we allow questions in Arabic maybe? Yes, sure. We can translate, can't we? Yeah. That okay. Okay. <laughs> okay well, but but can I can I just push my thing just uh, uh, just because uh, uh, there's a couple of minutes, which is see what I wonder if if it's true to say I mean uh, maybe you're right there's a whole unresearched area of transformative subjectivity in these popular sectors that you you haven't researched and that we don't know about that might be there. But what about if we, what about if we just hold the thought that the the discursive framework and the especially at this level of uh, of popular culture not conceived of in an authenticist way. Uh, what about if 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 we just imagine for a second that it is quite stable and continuous. But then would that the next implication of that would wouldn't that be to point to the significance of those very powerful rooted living traditions? I mean, you know, E. P. Thompson in his books Custom in Customs in Common, and his that book about from the eighteenth to the nineteenth century, 
uh, these sort of tissues of popular culture that are hugely significant in driving uh, contestation that other people come, urban intellectuals, and they're looking for revolutionary subjectivity. But actually, when you find these very rich, powerful traditions, think about you know, Linebound Redeker's hidden history of the revolutionary Atlantic, the, the slaves and others, the prostitutes, the, the sex workers, the pirates, the, uh, who have this sort of rugged uh, set of subjectivities that are very powerful, it turns out. Mm-hmm. They don't need, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Benjamin Constant talking about the rights of man, as it were. They're, they're you know, these... A very powerful forms, uh, and and you can trace. That's can't we? Say, I mean, this is relevant, isn't it, to the, the whole history of the region? I mean, what was it that mobilised people in 1925 in Syria? Was it uh, the the words of um, Abdurrahman Shahbandar, the urban nationalist, or was it much more the stuff and substance of? of the, the neighbourhood toughs, the warlords from the Druze areas, the, the, the Bedou clans, the, uh, uh, you know. So I just wondered, maybe it could be making an argument just for the significance of, of, this, of these uh, tissues and, and, and living traditions or customs in common or, or whatever we want to call them. But I do, John, I mean, I do make an argument yeah. for this. Right. But I'm also saying that actually we haven't looked sufficiently at what kind of changes and transformations that have undergone. I can see all signs of the changes mm. that have not been mm. looked at closely. Right. You know, I right. see it in the music, I see it in the practice, social practices, the few marriages, mm. I see it in all of the talk about, you know, this, the different regimes of in governing uh, sexual interaction of relations and, mm. and so on right. that this this so much transformation also mm. there which would articulate with those traditions that you're talking about mm. you know they would not be disappearing right. but I think there is also an, a kind of tremendous change that is happening that mm. we have not captured right, um, right. That still needs work. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we've, uh, we've pushed you long enough. Can we thank the speaker? <laughs> and the uh, discussant, and of course the Middle East Centre. So well, thank you very thank much you for coming. Yeah, uh, thank for you for coming. Questions and very nice to to, to see you.